Welcome to Sonosphere, the podcast that explores the sounds all around us in art and music movements through history. This is part five of our Birth of Modern Music series on European composers of the early 20th century, from the atonal compositions of Austria's Schoenberg to the realization of total serialism of Olivier Messiaen. We continue our coverage with German composer Karlheinz Stockhausen and the evolution of electronic music. This episode will hear from Stockhausen scholar Joe Drew on the life and works of Stockhausen. World War II wreaked havoc in the world. As Schoenberg was fleeing Germany, young soldiers in Italy, Greece, Germany, and Great Britain were fighting on all fronts. A few of these soldiers would become the leaders of the musical scene after World War II, and they were stained by the tragedies they witnessed in this war, one of which was Karlheinz Stockhausen. Hardly anyone had a lasting impact on electronic music, as did Stockhausen. Stockhausen was a prolific composer and teacher. His childhood was rife with despair. You know, he was born in 1928 in uh, Bergisch Gladbach, which is this very rural area outside of Cologne. And it's where he lived actually the most of his entire life. Fortunately, he was born into a very tempestuous household with a, a mom who suffered from postpartum schizophrenia, actually and was committed to a mental asylum. And when the Nazis took power, they had a a policy of euthanizing mental uh, patients because they called them useless eaters. And she was euthanized before the war when he was a boy. The family was told that she died of leukemia like everybody else in the asylum. But we know now that she was taken to the gas chamber. My name is Joe Drew. I'm the director of Analog Arts, which is a nonprofit production company. And one of our specialties is the presentation of Stockhausen's music. I'm a trumpeter and also a scholar of Stockhausen's music. And his father, Simon, was a, a school teacher. And after his mother, Gertrude, was killed by the Nazis, he remarried and Stockhausen had a somewhat strained relationship with his stepmother. But there's a moment when the war started where Simon basically leaves for the front and having been a Nazi party captain, one of his jobs was to collect dues from a larger town. And he actually deputized Karlheinz, his son, to collect the dues for him from time to time for the party. But Simon knew after the war that he um, would not be the most popular person in the neighborhood. And he kind of gives this farewell speech to his son. He says to him, look after your your brothers and sisters, I'm I'm not coming back. And indeed he dies uh, on the, the front. So by the time he was a early teenager, he was an orphan and he was an incredibly uh, religious, deeply Catholic person but also really, really searching for what to do with his life. (laughs) 
At 16, Stockhausen, as a military orderly, was reviving soldiers who had fallen victim to the Allies' bombing. He recalled using a straw to pour liquid into men's mouths whose bodies were still moving. During the war, he would listen to American military broadcasts and the bopping rhythms of Glenn Miller's band. remarkable series of correspondences with the novelist Herman Hesse, who he idolized, where you, you get the sense of this orphan just pleading with the author almost to be a father figure to him. And Hesse writes him back, as he wrote back a lot of young men in this post-war generation in Germany who'd lost their, their fathers and um, mothers, and is very nurturing of Stockhausen and encourages him to follow his most unique, his most creative voice. He gives him advice that says, avoid anything that you have in common with, with other people. And this is one of the overarching concerns we see with Stockhausen. When he first wrote to Hesse, he thought he was going to be a novelist, uh, but he had been writing some music. And when Hesse urges him to do what is most unique and most creative about you, Stockhausen starts to, to really internalize the his most original voice is actually what he has to say as a composer. And basically from that point on, he dedicates himself to becoming a, a composer. His authoritarian demeanor and off-kilter personality was off-putting to many. He once stated that he was from the star Sirius. This made people think he was a musical hack. His presence was somewhat mythical. He even said, You are always referring to my music. What does it mean, my music? It's just something that has come into my mind, and I am working on all the time, and that's it. So, I'm a myth. I'm a name. And if I go away, then they just attach on something that vibrates within yourself, where you are confronted with the so-called music. Stockhausen was heavily influenced by Messiaen's Mode de Valeurs et des Intensités. He was drawn to the sounds and then the scale of durations and dynamics. In Kreisspiel, you can hear an influence of this style. Paul Griffiths wrote, As for the newness, out of the new system comes a new way of listening, though perhaps not directly. These new sounds, says Griffiths, is of a ruthlessly channeled disorder of unseen hands moving notes according to unknown rules, as if one were observing a complex game with no prior knowledge of its etiquette. Stockhausen's composition, Kreisfiel, flies free from the thematic harmonic continuity that Schoenberg had wanted to preserve, and does so not by punishing that continuity as Boulez had done, but by ignoring it. You start to hear Stockhausen's embrace of non-European traditions and more Asian and possibly African inspiration.
Stockhausen attended Darmstadt's summer courses in 1951. Darmstadt was a creative haven for new music artists like Boulez, Berio, and later John Cage, among others. Darmstadt exuded the traditional 20th century obsessions of the many avant-garde composers before it, a revolutionary impulse, the urge to overthrow the bourgeois and the old age longing for transcendence. There was no distinction between pushing musical technique and avant-garde thinking to its limits. The spirituality and ideology was just as important as the sound. In fact, they informed it. According to an article in The Guardian, that's what he heard when he was in his early 20s in the out there, at the time, experiments of Olivier Messiaen's work of the late 40s to rationalize rhythm, dynamic, and articulation, as well as pitch. For Stockhausen, this was a way of making music approach the poetry and organic complexity of the stars, of the universe. Stockhausen wrote Formel in the months following the completion of Kreisspiel, and this led to a commission to write a piece for the Donischwegen Festival. With money in hand, he headed to Paris to learn from Messiaen in January 1952. That year, Stockhausen composed Concrete et Today. He described his process. First, I recorded six sounds of variously prepared low piano strings struck with an iron beater. Tape speed 76.2 centimeters per second. After that, I copied each sound many times and with scissors, cut off the attack of each sound. A few centimeters of the continuation, which was briefly, quite steady dynamically, were used. Several of these pieces were spliced together to form a tape loop, which was then transposed to certain pitches using a transposition machine. A few minutes of each transposition were then recorded on separate tapes. Stockhausen's first set of piano pieces, called Klaverstücke, exemplified a pulverization of sounds, in effect, bouncing notes of the piano off of each other, like echoing sounds down a hallway. Stockhausen, like Cage, thought objective process and automatic mechanism would have a lasting positive impact. Stockhausen was, as Alex Ross stated, the crown prince of the new music kingdom. He was like a great colonial adventurer proceeding through jungles of sound. Stockhausen, like Varese around the same time, is credited with the development of a new genre called electronic music. Intrigued from the beginning, Stockhausen found influence in experimental physicist Werner Meyer Eplar, who studied synthetic speech and sound. Diverging with Pierre Schaeffer and Pierre Henri in Paris, the Franco-German cultural differences defined the split in the two electronic schools of thought. Germans believed true electronic music came from a studio, keeping it as a pure existence outside of the known and conventional. But Stockhausen branched outside of the limits of the German electronic aesthetic and spent time in Paris working with both Boulez and Messiaen. So he was a very, very Catholic guy. He went to mass daily. He had a huge um, crisis in his personal life when he took up with his second wife and realized he wouldn't be able to 
remain Catholic in good standing uh, as somebody who, who was going to get a divorce. And he knew that that set him apart from people like Boulez and, and most of the post-war generation. And there's this really seminal moment in the mid-70s when he does this piece called Inori, uh, which is Japanese for prayer, and it's um, a series of prayer gestures. And it's essentially uh, like his coming out party as a religious poser. Not that he was writing sacred music, but um, he was writing music that very much to him signified his relationship with God, express uh, his concept of God through music, and potentially, you know, allow the listener a sort of path to God through his music. So that definitely set him apart. And, there, you know, when that piece came out, people were like, okay, uh, you know, he's off. This is no longer the, the Darmstadt Dachshund that we knew. And a lot of peers like Boulez and, and that group kind of wrote him off as this kind of kook who was living, you know, in his cloister in Curtin and, and writing this wacky religious music. And in a sense, he was, he was really that person all along. You could almost, it's like he was a closeted theist through this, this post-war period in the, the late 50s, early 60s, where he became this kind of, you know, the face of modern music. And people thought of, you know, this cold, austere, calculating modernist um, aesthetic that he, he cultivated. But really what was underneath that was a guy who had a very active prayer life and, and, and a, a, a rampant curiosity about, about God. In 1955, Stockhausen created Yesong de Hinglinge, or Songs of the Youth, at the WDR studio. This was the most original electronic creation of his, and perhaps the most influential electronic composition ever created, combining aspects of musique concrete and 11 essential electronic elements. Sine waves. Periodically and... Statistically frequency modulated sine waves. Frequency modulated sine waves or? Statistically amplitude modulated sine waves. Periodic and? Statistical combinations of both types of sine wave modulation simultaneously. Colored noise with unchanged or? Statistically changed density. Filter impulses, clicks, from periodic or? Statistical impulse sequences. Single syllables and words are taken from the Song of Youths in the Fiery Furnace, the third book of Daniel, and whenever language emerges momentarily from the sound signals of the music, it praises God. The eleven basic elements selected for the sounds allow me to compose a sufficiently high degree of oral relationships between all the electronic sounds and speech sounds used. This work later left a major impression on Paul McCartney and the Beatles. Sgt. Pepper's and the White Album wouldn't have been the same without it. 
Stockhausen wrote Gruppen for three orchestras when he was 30 in 1957. It creates some disturbing sounds in your ears while he moves up and down pitch sporadically with long low pauses in between for 23 minutes creating a sort of duplication of electronic practice panning from one channel to another. Like much of Stockhausen's work, Gruppen was somewhat emotionally neutral, setting it apart from the romantic predecessors. Stockhausen began work on Contacte in 1958 and completed it in 1960. The sounds were produced using an impulse generator and tunable selective amplifier as well as a sine wave generator and square wave generator. Stockhausen stated, Most of the sounds, sound noises, and noises were produced by multiple acceleration of rhythmic impulse sequences. For some sounds, an echo plate with continually adjustable echo length was used. Using all four of the perspectives of sound, he again is able to bring his lifelong goal of total serialism into light. The way he organized this massive amount of ideas was serialism. And it's not just, there's a great amount of misunderstanding about what serialism is and how he used it in his music. But for him, it was a way of organizing his ideas. And so the fact that he had all these massive amount of ideas about any given piece, he would use serialism to organize that so that it wasn't didn't just come out as some kind of jumbled mess. So it can seem like an overwhelming, to many people, that's why his works don't get performed, because when you get these scores, it's like a ridiculous amount of detail at first glance. And part of the, the work of performing and producing his music and analyzing it is weeding through that thicket of detail that that he imbues in almost every score that he wrote. While demonstrating his serialist pieces at Harvard, young composer Tony Conrad was inspired and began his own foray into tape music, and thus Stockhausen's place in modern rock music was solidified. Conrad went on to play in the Dream Syndicate and the Velvet Underground. Stockhausen visited Japan in 1966, and this visit was crucial to his artistic development. He was impressed by traditional Japanese culture, and it gave him an international awareness of himself and his art. In Tokyo, he composed the electronic piece Telemusic, in which recordings of music from around the world are made to intermingle. He left his first wife and married American visual artist Mary Bauermeister shortly after this trip. They had two children, one of which, Simon, saxophonist and synthesizer, would go on to play in his ensemble he created. I don't know how losing his parents would have affected the way that he dealt with 
his children, more the relationship he had with his father and that a lot of German men have with their sons was certainly continued in, into the next generation with this, this very kind of cold, very um, task-oriented sort of relationship. He was a very warm person in a lot of ways, but his priorities were clearly on his music. There's a quote where he said that when you know the story of his life is written, what will matter the most is all the scores that he's written, all the CDs that he's recorded. He doesn't mention, you know, the children that he had or, you know, the wives that he had. So this is where his, his priorities were. And in a sense, to get close to the man, you had to sort of be a part of, of the music in, in a certain sense. He could be horribly vicious when he wanted to be, and he quite often was. But there was also a great deal of love and affection for, for his children. Stockhausen composed Stimmung in 1968 for six vocalists arranged in a circle, chanting a B-flat chord for more than an hour. Russell Platt said of this piece, Humming quietly to himself, he conceived of a piece that would be simple in its musical materials, a serene ninth chord emanating from a low B-flat, and yet dazzlingly exotic in the overtones that would be produced when the work's six solo vocalists intoned vowel sounds in ways that can resemble Central Asian throat singing. This piece is 51 models, precisely notated packets of musical material that unfolded like overlapping mini movements across the work's 78-minute duration, provide the contrast of consonants in a jumble of words. Stockhausen had lived in California in the mid-60s, and although Stimmung is organized in a very Germanic, mathematical manner, the piece's effect can be as lulling and hallucinatory as the improvisatory, minimalist works of Terry Riley or Lamont Young. In German, Stimmung can mean tuning, mood, or a dozen other things. Stimmung has a similarly protean vitality that will make it essential for decades to come. Momente, though incomplete originally, premiered in 1962, was completed in 1969. He initially started this piece during a cold winter in a small village in Sicily, where he and Bauermeister stayed. Taking inspiration in Bauermeister's paintings, he worked through the winter. Stockhausen says of this piece, All the conceivable aural images flew to and fro inside me. 
In my imagination, I constantly shuffled them around, interchanged them, until I found whatever pleased me most. Then I would hastily try to get it down in notation. He said further, The degree of change is a quality that can be composed as well as the characteristics of the music that is actually changing. I can compose of a series of degrees of change, or we can call them degrees of renewal. Then I can start with any musical material and follow the pattern of change and see where it leads, from zero change to a defined maximum. That is what I understand by moment forming. We hear now from Joe Drew on Stockhausen's work ethic. His work ethic was second to none. You know, I think the best way to maybe understand it is to look at those early electronic pieces, which he was working at the West German radio in Cologne, and he was generating these, these sine tones from sine wave generators. And people thought, you know, he was kind of crazy. Because it wasn't just a matter of turning on the sine wave generator and, and recording it and then looping it. He had to actually like radio down to the room where the sine wave generators were and tell a technician, I want 440 hertz or I want you know this frequency. And then the, the technician would dial that up and send the signal upstairs to where Stockhausen was. He would record it. And then, only then, would he start the process of assembling a tape library of these sine waves and then splicing them, filtering them, you know, modulating them and creating these amazingly complex pieces. And so, you know, the people who were working in that radio station just thought he was like this kind of crazy maniac who was doing all this detailed work with these machines that were really just there to calibrate the radio signal. Nobody, nobody saw any, any purpose in the at all. And of course, at the end of that, we, we see, you know, he comes up with this whole new tonal language and this whole new way of, of creating music. And that was really the, the way he worked throughout his life. He was uh, monomaniacal about um, working on his music. And, and like I said earlier in that, that quote, well, that's what mattered to him. So everything else took a side, was a, was a side thing. And if it got in the way, it would be chucked overboard. So at the beginning of each year, he would write out a schedule for the year you know in january i'll be doing this and february i'll be doing this and at the end of the year it was actually pretty amazing at how closely he had hewed to that schedule so his, his work ethic was relentless and it was pretty pretty unmatched and that led to obvious tensions with people who aren't prepared to to work that hard you know as hard as he was on his music and he would be frustrated when working with an orchestra and come in and people are closing their cases at the end of the union assigned time and that became a scene in in one of his operas was a, a strike by lazy union uh, musicians to, to his mind they were lazy because they didn't want to work overtime Also in 1969, Stockhausen premiered his work Fresco for four orchestra groups, Wall Sounds for Meditation. He was asked to showcase works in Beethoven's birth city of Bonn. Fresco was intended as a new ambient work and was composed relatively simply. Some of the performers protested as they were to perform glissandos, gliding from one pitch to another, at a rate of one octave per minute. Performers stated they were only performing because they were being paid. Fresco was unusual not only in composition, but also in performance. The four orchestras were placed in foyers around the concert hall. 
The performance was supposed to last for hours, but some performers got up and walked out after an hour. The idea of wall sounds is in no way ironically meant. He imagined that for once, instead of all the usual chatter from the cloakrooms to one seat in the concert hall, all the time until the conductor enters, the whole building would already be resounding. As early as 1958, Stockhausen called for concert halls that were suited to his idea of spatialization. He says, A spherical space which is fitted all around with loudspeakers. In the middle of this spherical space, a sound permeable, transparent platform will be suspended for the listeners. They could hear music composed for such standardized spaces coming from above, from below, and from all points of the compass. Invited by the West German government to perform at the 1970 World's Fair, Stockhausen attempted to make this a reality with a special multimedia project with artist Otto Pianet, but was denied the multimedia aspect. The pavilion theme was Gardens of Music, in keeping with which Fritz Bornemann, architect of the pavilion, intended planting the exhibition halls beneath a broad lawn with a connected auditorium sprouting above the ground. Initially, Bornemann conceived this auditorium in the form of an amphitheater, with a central orchestra podium and surrounding audience space. In the summer of 1968, Stockhausen met with Bornemann and persuaded him to change this conception to a spherical space with the audience in the center, surrounded by loudspeaker groups and seven rings at different latitudes around the interior walls of the sphere. He was asked to perform five-hour sessions of his work, which he did for 183 consecutive days and was deemed an overall success. We hear again from Joe Drew on Stockhausen's controversial 9-11 comments, in which he, so often consumed with his own thoughts, fails to see the effect his remarks had on the people of New York and America. I live in New York and it definitely put a damper on things after 9-11 happened. People weren't that interested in, in presenting Stockhausen. But again, you know, we have to go back to what we were talking about before with the work ethic. You know, this is a guy who lived in his own world. There's a great scene in, in Mitlock where this camel campaigns for the, the presidency of the, the Galactic Senate. And it dances around on stage. And, you know, Stockhausen spent a lot of time creating this scene for this dancing camel. And when this the scene premiered in in London, he was in a cab with somebody and he pointed out the window and he said, you know, look at that billboard. Everybody is thinking about my camel. The person looked at the billboard and saw it was a Joe Camel billboard. He was always immersed in his own work. It was, and it's kind of hard to break him out of thinking in that framework. And so when you listen to that press conference, the question is very simple. It's, do you think these characters you're writing about which are Lucifer, Michael, and Eve, are real. And he points to the, the attacks which had just happened as an example of how Lucifer was, is in fact real. It's not just some imaginary character that he was writing about. And so he gives a very detailed answer about that. And he's absolutely oblivious to how it felt to people living in New York at, at the time because he's so focused on you know, who Lucifer was to him, and he's, he's answering this question that was posed to him about his own work, and he's not really thinking about the, the larger ramifications of it. 
So yeah, it, it, his reputation took a huge hit from that. Here in New York, it's still it's not the biggest issue in presenting in getting his works booked now. The biggest issue is that people just don't know his work aside from a few seminal pieces in the in the fifties and sixties. They are you know almost wholly ignorant of of the leash cycle, and that tends to be the, the bigger issue. Towards the end of his life and career, Stockhausen wrote ambitious operas that captured his spiritual outlook of the cosmos. From 1977 to the early 2000s, Stockhausen spent most of his time on Licht, what Alex Ross calls a meta-Wagnerian cycle of seven operas. Each opera was named for a day of the week. It is the symbol of relationships between three archetypical characters, life-giving Eva, wisdom-seeking Michael, and freedom-searching Lucifer. The score made such extravagant demands that no opera house to this day has succeeded in staging Wednesday, where the third scene calls for a helicopter to pick up four string players and take them out of the show. Joe Drew talks about the ambitious performances of Leaked. Yeah, I mean, the, the most famous one is, is the helicopter string quartet, where he, the Arditi quartet, it was actually the Salzburg Festival, you know, asked him to, to write a string quartet. And he thought, no, no, I, I can't do that. Number one, I, I don't write for standard ensembles like orchestra anymore. But then he, you know, he claims to have had this dream where he, he saw the, the quartet flying in, in separate helicopters. And then he wrote this piece. So it was commissioned from the Salzburg Festival. Uh, at that point, he was in the middle of the second to last opera, which is Mittwoch, Wednesday. So this is in the 90s. He ends up writing this string quartet where each member is in a different helicopter. And it seems to have absolutely no connection whatsoever to what story there is in, in Mitfok. He actually manages to kind of weave it together. And in 1977-ish, when he kind of first formulates the idea of Leach, that's really what he was after, was this almost like a, a framework for whatever it was that he'd write in the next 30 years. So he wasn't out to kind of write a beginning-to-end heptology of seven operas. He was out to write works that kind of fed into this overarching narrative. So there's obviously huge impediments to performing the helicopter string quartet with people in, in four uh, different helicopters. So that's that's a huge issue with a lot of the, the, the big scenes in these, is how do you, how do you make these things uh, work? Stockhausen died in Germany at the age of 79 in 2007. As Paul Griffiths wrote in the New York Times, Stockhausen had secured his place in music history by the time he was 30. He had taken a leading part in the development of electronic music, 
and his early instrumental compositions similarly struck out in new directions in terms of their formal abstraction, rhythmic complexity, and startling sound. This has been an independent production by Amy S. and Chris Williams, engineered by Benfis. A special thanks to Joe Drew, Ben Seiler, and Megan Avery. Check out the playlist accompanying this episode featuring works by Stockhausen at sonosphere.podcast.com and click on Press Play. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Thank you.